0: We're continuing through the book of Nehemiah. We stepped out of it last Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, for a message from the end of uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. And uh, part of what Jesus says there to his disciples is, Do not fear. uh, And fear not is the subtitle of our message today. Uh, This sermon series is entitled, Restoration Continued, uh, because that work that was begun by Zerubbabel and Ezra is detailed in the book of Ezra, actually companion to this letter, Nehemiah. It continues now, although it happened a long time ago in a place far away, uh, this is the 5th century B.C., there is still much for us to appreciate today as God has preserved this in His Word for his church. And so recently in chapters 4 and 5, we saw opposition, opposition to this work of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem that Nehemiah, now, uh, now appointed governor of this region, is leading. Opposition from without. They're surrounded by the non-Jewish peoples, the peoples of the land, who, and some of whom have intermarried and they're giving opposition. Chapter 4, opposition from within. Chapter 5, realize that the rich were oppressing the poor and some were taking advantage of their kinsmen, of their countrymen, unfair labor practices and and worse. Chapters 4 and 5, opposition from without and within, respectively. And now today, we'll see the external pressure on Nehemiah is ratcheted up. He becomes a target. Enemies decide that Nehemiah must be eliminated, somewhat in the vein of strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, which is mentioned both in the Old Testament and the New, by the way, in Zechariah 13, the Old, and in Matthew 26, in the New, Christ to the 11th at the Mount of Olives. Longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian James Boyce says that chapter 6 is a story of intrigue, innuendo, and intimidation. You got good Presbyterian alliteration there intrigue, innuendo, and intimidation. And so we will see that this morning as we proceed together. So, enemies are surrounding Jerusalem. They take a different tack, as we've said. Against Nehemiah, given his success, and as we'll see in just a moment, he, he says, you know, I, I had built the wall. He doesn't mean single-handedly. It means that he's the top dog in addition to being governor. He was the project supervisor. Um, he's actually a rather humble man. So in Nehemiah chapter 6, we'll attend to this whole chapter today, but I'm going to read it in three sections. This first section is through verse 9. Hear then the word of God. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakiraphim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that You and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you also have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Verse 8, Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. And your word Your word is not only a masterpiece of literature, including uh, poetry and history and and narrative and and doctrine and prophecy and such, but your word is what conveys to us how to know you and how to live godly in Christ Jesus. And that includes uh, the Old Testament with the Psalms and the prophets and this historical book, and so we pray now that you would help us to apprehend the gospel, to understand how salvation and your plan is being unfolded in this drama of redemption of a people for your own possession, and how we too have an interest in that. We pray now that you will bring your spirit to bear upon your word and in our hearts and minds. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's a trap. Uh, verses 1 through 9, he is kind of invited into a lion's den of sorts. Uh, if you do the geography where they ask him to go, is, you know, it seems like it might be neutral territory. It's about a day's journey out to the extreme edge of his territory and you know, kind of the halfway point maybe. But really, it's uh, hostile and it's toward Philistine territory. They're trying to bump him off, and he realizes that. Sanballat is a foreigner. He sent messages repeatedly to set up a meeting, but uh, in short order, Nehemiah sees through this and understands his motive is ultimately, uh, he intended to do me harm, bodily harm, right? In verse 2, and Nehemiah puts them off. He says, look, we're doing a big job here. I can't take time off from work. And they seem to sort of try to reason with him and say, look, you know, you all have had some success. The breaches in the wall have been filled in. You know, all that's left is, you know, hanging the doors and in the gates. Certainly you can can take time and come out to us now. Well, just the time factor would be, you know, roughly three days, right? A day's journey out, a day of meeting together, and then the day's journey back. And he says that he can't really afford the time, but more than that, he knows that although it is, sort of set up and offered to him initially as, uh, hey, look, let's, 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 let's be adults here. Alright, we weren't for this project from the get-go, you know that, but you've come a long ways, so why don't you come out and talk with us and let's see how we can put these rumors that are swirling about, uh, let's see how we can put those to rest and all live and work and cooperate together. Uh, but the fifth time, it's different. An open letter is sent, and that is a deliberate ploy uh, to spread gossip. It's so that everybody can know it, because in the ancient uh, Near Eastern world, the way you would send a message is it would be sealed and sent by a messenger's hand, and uh, usually the, the seal would bear the person who sent it, and you could tell if it was open or not. It was private way of communications, right? Pony Express, Western Union, something like that. And uh, now, the fifth time, he sends an open letter so that everybody can read it. It's making the rounds. Word is getting out, and it's, it's intended to kind of stir up strife. Uh, the enemies are devising a plot, an evil scheme against him, and they accuse him of something serious, of treason against the Persian king, the great king, Artaxerxes, the one whom Nehemiah worked for back in the court before he came to Jerusalem. And this charge is very serious. If you remember, a year ago, we went through the book of Ezra. And these very sorts of allegations is what caused the work under Artaxerxes to come to a grinding halt. It was Nehemiah's appeal, roughly a a baker's dozen years later, urging him to reconsider his stance and to make a reversal in foreign policy and allow the work to proceed. And he finds favor, ultimately, before the heavenly king and before this earthly king, this earthly potentate. And so the work is continuing. And Nehemiah is very perceptive to their ploys. His answer to them is, (laughs) the fifth time, is kind of funny. He says, in essence, to them, y'all are crazy. Uh, you, you can't make stuff like this up. These are, these are figments of your own imagination. I mean, it's kind of sarcastic a little bit in his reply. He, he says that, you know, these are baseless fabrications that you're coming up with. And he knows, again, that their motive is to discourage the people so that they would lose heart. And uh, the, the, the wordplay here is so that their hands would drop. Their hands would drop from the work. Well, if you think of uh, boxing or any sort of martial arts, one of the things that you're instructed to do is keep your hands up, right? To keep a guard up. Keep your hands up, strong, defensive, ready for action, ready for work. And so that's the thought here, discouraging the people. But in verse 9, he sees through their scare tactics and he utters a short prayer, Strengthen my hands. In other words, give him, give me resolve, grant me courage for the facing of this hour. So that's our first section. And uh, one small takeaway from this is Nehemiah sure knew how to say no, didn't he? He he didn't let the repeated efforts wear him down. All right, drats, foiled again, verses 10 through 14. Let's take a look. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, And also the prophetess, uh, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And lest I uh, mention, I'm reading out of uh, the Pew Bible here, and you do have a full page insert available at your seat, I hope. Um, It's got the text on the back for your convenience, and you can see the repetition of, this theme of fear in chapter 6 that I put in bold to highlight it. That's what's going on here. Drats foiled again. They, they attempt to discredit Nehemiah. We've got slimy Shemaiah. He is homebound for some reason, uh, but not completely because he says, well, let's go out to the temple together. Uh, he had access to the temple, so it may be that, in addition to supposedly being some sort of a prophet, he may have also been a priest. Perhaps uh, as far as why he was homebound, commentators are split. Some think that he had some sort of a—he uh, was an invalid of some sort, that he had some sort of physical infirmity. Again, not so great as to keep him from going up to the temple. Others think that maybe he was ritually or ceremonially uh, uh, impure for a time and was needing to stay at home for a time until his ritual purification was complete. But either way, either he's hiding behind his disability to uh, uh, elicit sympathy and and mask his motives, and he pretends to be on Nehemiah's side, uh, whatever the case may be. And his advice is let's take refuge in the temple. Let's take refuge in the sanctuary. And Nehemiah recognizes that this is not from God. So, Sanballat, in our first paragraph, it's a trap. Sanballat is a foreigner. Now, in the second portion, Shemaiah and the prophetess, also a female, is mentioned, and others as well. They're Jewish. So they are from within, and you've, you've got, they've taken a bribe. They've been paid off, these prophets, so-called prophets. But as I said, Nehemiah is very uh, perceptive, and so he doesn't go for it. What's very key is in verse 13, he says, for him to follow this advice would be sin. Not only would it give him a bad name, okay, so was he concerned about his reputation? Yes, yes. Uh, his character, his integrity, his, his word, uh, to some degree. But he says it would be sin for him to act in this way. Why would it be sin? Uh, he won't give them what they want. You know, He'd get a bad name. But he knew more than that, to do this would be against the law of God. Only priests were allowed in the temple, according to Numbers 18. There was provision for people to go into the courtyard in Exodus 21. But he was being urged here to go into the temple, perhaps into the holy place, which he knew that only the high priest, only once a year, and only with blood was supposed to approach God in this way. And he was going to do no such thing. He would not be party to it. He's not going to run. He's not going to hide. He's not going to take refuge there uh, among the nations. You, if you were a murderer, there were places you could go and, and take refuge. But Nehemiah understands the word of God and that for him it would be sin, that he doesn't qualify. And he can't do this. It would be an affront to God. It would be against the law of God. Again, James Boyce, uh, here he says, the God who forbids us from doing one thing in one place, does not contradict himself by telling us to do it in another. He is at all times consistent. And Nehemiah here shows his reverence for God and his knowledge of the word of God. So then, in verse 14, the last uh, verse of this section He says, remember, that's another prayer, remember these folks, but not for good, as he had prayed in the previous chapter. In chapter 5, verse 19, he says, remember for good. Here, this is another brief prayer for judgment on his enemies, Uh, sometimes in uh, our circles called an imprecatory prayer. He's asking God to take note of this, and to deal with them. Now, he doesn't take matters into his own hands, but entrusts it to the Lord. Okay, and now we get to the end of the chapter, verses 15 through 19, mission accomplished. Let's read this section together. I'll read aloud. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, and in 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. That theme of fear, once again, which is why I, the subtitle for today's message is uh, Fear Not. All right, so mission is accomplished with the help of God. This last section, it's sort of two things mixed together. One is the the good news, the progress that they have made. Only 52 days of actual work on the wall. Now, there was some weeks of preparation uh, and then travel for Nehemiah to get on site from when he had first heard the news of the condition of God's people and of the walls and of the gates having been burned with fire and thrown down and all that. And so well less than a year after Nehemiah had heard the news, and less than two months of the actual work with this hodgepodge of the people that God uses that we saw in chapter 3, perfumers and goldsmiths and men and women, families working shoulder to shoulder on this architectural engineering project of rebuilding this wall. Of course, it was only the eastern side that had been pushed down and fallen down completely. In other portions, they were just, you know, kind of building up the ruins. All right. Well, less than a year. They recognize that uh, Nehemiah recognizes that it was being done, has been done with the help of God. So do the surrounding nations. The help of God, God's involvement, His blessing in favor, His strength and power is what helped this motley crew pull off this task that nobody else previously had been able to do. And as a result, in verse 16, the surrounding peoples fell greatly in their own esteem. Uh, literally, the Hebrew language says, literally, their eyes fell, which figuratively means... They lost their confidence. So this whole scheme of sending letter after letter and then finally circulating an open letter was all intended to have this result of them losing heart and morale dipping down, as we actually had seen it happened a little bit in one chapter. I think that was chapter 4 or 5. Um, and it, it, because of the help of God, ends up having the reverse effect. They finished the work. They rebuilt the wall. And uh, the surrounding peoples are frightened instead. So Nehemiah is not scared, but the nations are frightened. And we see in this God's great reversing power, as we did last weekend, uh, the difference between Good Friday and the death of Christ, and Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Christ, God's great reversing power is revealed time and time again in the scriptures. So the surrounding nations, they recognize God's involvement. In the New Testament, Christ himself in the Sermon on the Mount said, let your light shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and think you're swell. No, No, see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that's something for us to bear in mind. So that's the great news of this last section is mission accomplished. The help of God. It didn't, and their efforts at at scaring them, their scare tactics weren't effective. Um, And yet, you probably heard as I read verses 17 through 19 mixed in with that, is you've got insiders in Jerusalem with mixed motives. Uh, Sharing privileged information, they become sources to this Tobiah. And they're secretly allied with him through family ties, right? Through intermarriage, and also they they make oaths. They're in business together, they're in league, they're in bed together, however you might put it. Um, They're corresponding with him. There's some underhanded stuff going on. Kind of like watching the TV show Survivor today. You got secret alliances. One person promises to be on this group's side, and yet you find out is on the other side. And it's hard to know who to trust. Speaking of traps and ambushes, let's go to letter C in your outline: some New Testament elaborations and applications. And what we're doing in this section is we're observing the principle of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. That's the best way to do it, to not only get the context of a given passage, but also to give consideration to where it fits within God's grand plan of redemption of a people for himself, and also look to where else in the Bible these themes are spoken to. So of traps and ambushes. I'm not going to have us look up John 18, we are going to look up some different passages as we go. But in John 18, that's where they come to arrest Jesus. And it says twice in this passage, it speaks of Judas who betrayed him. Twice it spells that out. And what is, you know, it's, it's kind of dark. They come by night with torches and stuff. But you can imagine it was shadowy and dark where they were outside and they ask for Jesus, and what does he say? He says, I am. And if you read the narrative, it's quite fascinating because those who are coming to arrest him, it says they fell to the ground. There was something about the way that Jesus said, I am, which is the name for God in all of Scripture, not just the Gospel of John. That they fell down. And yet, in the same text, Jesus says, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? What is the cup that he's going to drink? It's the cup of wrath. The cup of wrath that's spoken to several many places throughout the Old Testament that talks about the judgment of God stored up for the nations that one day will be poured out on sin and Jesus is going to ultimately on the cross drink this cup of wrath and that's the gospel news is we have forgiveness of Christ because the punishment that we deserve instead fell on him but here in John 18 when Jesus says shall i not drink the cup the father has given me even though the passage twice points out that it was Judas that betrayed him this points to Christ's confidence and trust in God his father and his belief in the providence of God even though there was a human who betrayed him this was still from the hand of the father god's great reversing power again many of us know genesis 50:20 uh, when Joseph was sold into slavery and then he had his chance to get his comeuppance against his brothers and he reveals himself and his words to them are not harsh, but instead what you intended for evil, God meant for good, the saving and preserving of many lives. God's great reversing power. As far as strength in my hands go, um, there are numerous instances in the Old Testament of people losing courage. I, in my studies, I came upon so many of them, I just we, we, we couldn't take the time to look at them all. I'll mention two of them. In Jeremiah 50, uh, it speaks of the king of Babylon, and his hands fell helpless. So this imagery that we have in Nehemiah 6 of they wanted our hands to fall from the work, Nehemiah's prayer, strengthen my hands. Um, We see this elsewhere in numerous places in the Old Testament. And then in Ezekiel 21, it talks about some people's hearts melting and their hands growing feeble. Um, In contrast to that, When he prays, strengthen my hands, it's a prayer to say, grant me not only strength, but we would pray along with that, grant us, Lord, good courage from your Holy Spirit. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, I wish we could spend the time to read the whole chapter together, but we can't. The context is this, God's fatherly discipline of those whom he loves but I'll just read two verses from Hebrews 12. I always remember 12.12 because 12, uh, it says strengthen the knees that are feeble. So Hebrews 12, let me first read verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. What's the lesson there? Look to Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus so you won't grow weary or faint-hearted or lose courage or let your hands grow weak or drop. And then then verse 12, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees uh, in life and before God's fatherly discipline. Uh, And then from the Old Testament, Zephaniah chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 14 through 17, so if you want to turn there, you may do that in your pew Bible. This would be page 940, and you will probably recognize verse 16, no, no verse 17, the last one that I'll read. This is Zephaniah 3 at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. And then get this, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So once again, in the scriptures, don't need to fear. Don't let your hands drop or grow weak. In fact, we have a singing Savior God sings over his people. He exalts in those whom he grants salvation to. Let's talk last about fear a little further. Do not fear. Last week I had said from Matthew 28, this is the most frequent command in scripture. In one English version, it's 70 times. 70 times, fear not, do not be afraid. Uh, we'll look up one passage in Luke. I've list, listed several. Remember in the nativity story, the story of the birth of Christ. And in Luke 1, it talks about uh, Zechariah, the father of John the baptizer, his prophecy that we might serve the Lord without fear. That's without slavish fear. We made that distinction last week. Slavish fear is the sort that shrinks back to judgment And John the Baptist's dad said, because of the one whom you're going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. And when he comes, we'll be able to serve God without fear. And and also in Luke 1, to Mary, the mother of Jesus, the angel came and said, do not fear to her as well. Do not fear to Zechariah. Do not fear Mary, the mother of Jesus. And in her prayer, her song, her magnificat, as it is called, he speaks of, God's mercy being for those who fear him. Slavish fear, John the Baptist's daddy says we can serve God without fear. Slavish fear, the fear of judgment. Mary says God's mercy, which is that covenant love God has for his people, that said that loving kindness, that his mercy is for those who fear him. That's filial fear. The fear of sons and daughters of God who have right relationship with him through being adopted into the family of God by faith in God's one and only son, Jesus. And then in Luke chapter 2, do not fear to the shepherds, right? We read the Christmas story. If you read it out of the old King James, you say that and, and it came to the shepherds and they were sore afraid. Right? They were very afraid. So what is the message to them? Do not fear. Why? Because there's good news. What is the good news? A Savior will be born who is Christ, the Lord. The name Jesus means salvation. Christ is not His surname. It means He is the Anointed One, the Messiah of God, the Lord of glory. Come to earth, God in the flesh. Do not fear. I'll pause from Luke for just a moment and go up to the Old Testament for a second and read to us from both Deuteronomy and Joshua. So Deuteronomy, which means second law, it's the second iteration, second giving of the law. Why a second time? Because they've been wandering in the wilderness due to their disobedience for 40 years a whole generation has died off in the wilderness. They're on the plains of Moab waiting to go into the promised land to take possession of it. And M- Moses is going to pass the torch to his successor, Joshua. And what does he say to Joshua? In, uh, let's see. In Joshua, I'm sorry, first of all, in Deuteronomy 31, near the end of the book, I'm just going to read a few verses. This is Deuteronomy 31, uh, verses 6 through 8. Moses to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel. So first was in private, now it's in public. Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Verse 23, and the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. Did Joshua get the message? All you have to do is flip a couple chapters over to Joshua chapter 1, written by Joshua's own hand and see what he says. Verses 6 through 9, Joshua 1. Be strong and courageous. This is his exhortation to the people. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And verse 18. And they answered Joshua. Now the people respond back to what the the Lord through Joshua has said to them all. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Um, Whoever rebels against your commandment disobeys your words. Whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. I think Joshua got the message. I think the people got the message. The message, do not fear over and over again. So now, as we finish back to our verses in Luke, in uh, chapter eight, verse 50, Christ speaks to the daughter, uh, to uh, the father of Jairus, uh, who Jesus is about to raise from the dead. And he says, do not fear. But instead, what? Only believe, only rely on Jesus, have confidence in in the Lord, and fear God. All right, and then in chapter 12, and I'd like you to look at this one, the last verse that we'll look up together. Um, Luke chapter 12, I'll read verses 4 through 7. This is in your pew Bible, page 1035. And these are the words of Jesus, To his disciples. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. For you are all of more value than many sparrows. He says it again in verse 32. Fear not, little flock. He says it again in chapter 21 when he prophesied the fall of Jerusalem. Do not fear. And yet, in this little passage from Luke 12 that I just read, it says, do fear and don't fear. Don't fear people. Nehemiah wasn't scared, Tobiah, Sanballat, all the rest, even people that sort of infiltrated or made alliances that were unsavory and should not be from his own people. He wasn't afraid of them, but he did fear the Lord. He did respect and reverence God. And Jesus himself says, don't fear man, but do fear the Lord with this humble submission To God the Father. We talked about that last week. Easter, Jesus is raised from the dead, and the the angel appears to the women, Jesus appears to the women, and they go running off a mixture of joy with fear, healthy fear, respect for God, not the slavish sort that shrinks back in dread of judgment. Fear not. Do not be afraid. The Lord is with you. Be strong and courageous. Let's pray. Lord, grant us perspective. Um, there's an old hymn that says, grant us courage, grant us something else for the facing of these days. And, and we need courage. Courage. We don't need to just summon it up from within. We don't need to just draw upon our own resources or reserves, but we need to have an eternal perspective. We need to believe the gospel and to know that Jesus has, uh, that, that he drank the cup of wrath, stored up judgment, poured out by becoming a curse for us and the public spectacle of his death. For his people. And so we are freed from dread of judgment. But we are also free to revere your name. And to obey you. And to love you. And to walk in new obedience as your spirit gives us resurrection power. To put to death the deeds of our own flesh. And to live more and more unto righteousness. Help us to remember that you are with us always, even to the end of the age, for your presence indeed makes all the difference. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.